Hello and a warm welcome to the Centre Left Politics Podcast, hosted by myself, Malcolm Clark, and my co-host Carl Quilliam. Uh, as we've been off for a week, we hope you all had a fantastic Easter. And uh, also, if you'd be interested to appear on our podcast or have suggestions on who we could have on as guests, uh, we have had Chris Worrell, Paklas, Fraser Tinsley, and Sam Rushworth so far. Uh, but do let us know if you'd like uh, to join us or have a suggestion. You can contact us via email at centreleftpod at gmail.com. This week, we're going to chat about Labour attack ads. Uh, did Kia go too far recently? We will we will work that out and answer you definitively whether that is the case. Uh, also, Labour's plans for the high street. Baroness Varsi making quite a unprecedented attack on the Home Secretary, saying she's not up for the job. Um, and also our tips or complete shot in the dark selections for today's Grand National Race at Aintree. But first and foremost, Carl, how was your Easter? And have you had a good week so far? Uh, yeah, no, I've, I've, yeah, it was a good Easter. I was up in, up in Leeds. Uh, did a, a Easter egg hunt with my daughter. Nice. Got a big bucket of chocolate eggs, and uh, is still working her way through them. Um, I mean, she would have finished them on the day. Uh, if we let her. <laughs> Nothing wrong but with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, she's uh, yeah, she, she's particularly had a good Easter, um, and it's been it's been the first time she's been away. So she stayed with with my mum with her grandma for a few days this week. So she's been away, which has been interesting um, to yeah see how she's done. She's come back obviously with loads of presents from her grandma. So she's got a big bag of stuff and a and a doll. <laughs> how about you? How's your week? Well, I also had an Easter egg hunt and did very well, actually, at it. And But turns out that Tesco's Aisle 5 was not the actual hidden place, but I found loads. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I was, I'm always quite careful because I'm diabetic, so I allowed myself one like nice big one because they always taste nicer for some reason um, than the little weasel ones because I've had a few of them. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, good week so far, nice and busy. Um, back from our break, uh, I did get a message. Shout out to Ben. I've got a shout out to Ben because he always listens. Uh, he said he didn't miss it last week, so he's probably missed it slightly later this week. But uh, the good news for him is his weekend is not ruined. We are back. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's great to be back. And, uh, yeah, so great stuff. Um, moving on to the main section, uh, we do have, well, quite, I guess we. I was sort of looking through the last two weeks, and I think the big one that I'm glad we're able to talk about is the Labour attack ads. And it's caused a bit of a, a lot of interest, really, because um, I'm going to bring you in early on this call because I don't want to do like a massive monologue going through everything because there's quite a lot to get through. Um, I guess I should ask you the first question: What was your initial thought when you, when they appeared? What was your visceral reaction to them? Um, I don't. I, I didn't have a visceral reaction, which I think <laughs> probably says a lot about me <laughs> and how kind of. It, um embedded i am and sort of in campaign language and how much i've over the years obsessed with this kind of stuff you know i've been very i've always been very interested in particularly american style campaigning and that is so much nastier than anything that the labor party's ever done i think um and it's much more intensive so you know that they can do paid um you know, they can do pay TV ads um, and have some real, you know, some real dark stories that they tell to the to the electorate over there. Um, so I, I didn't I, like. I mean, I know a lot of people did, and that's why it's been, um, you know, so so talked about this week. And I think you know, seen as successful by the by the leadership and the people um, in the leadership team. Um, but yeah, it it. it for me, you know, I think I don't know if you saw how I got news for you last night, but they pointed out um, there was an ad that the Tories did uh, against Gordon Brown in 2010, which was effectively the same thing, saying, "Yeah, yeah Gordon Brown wants to gives you give we well, want another chance to let 80,000 criminals go free or something." Um, so it's it's really like the what it is is you know it, it's very much in line with normal political campaigning. The thing that I did, my 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 first thought, really, get yeah, given all that context, uh, was it's a bit soon. If you know, if you're going to do this and get and go hard like that, uh, and and personal to the prime minister, 
Um, starting what is potentially 18 months out from an election, you've got to be prepared to keep it up because the Tories will come back. They'll come back harder and probably stronger. You know, they've got, um, you know, they, it's much easier for them to ring up the editor of the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, and get stuff like this on the front pages. Uh, Labour have done well to get the coverage that they've got from what they've done this week. But, what, you know, there's uh, unless they're ready to keep going with this, there's a danger that you brought a knife to a gunfight in, in sort of political terms. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that 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 was my sort of tactical thought um, and, and sort of, I guess sort of strategic thought about how, how that's going to play over the next 18 months, really. Yeah, I think there was a couple of things that I kind of initially thought. Firstly was that maybe, like, I guess it's just two things that firstly I'm someone who likes to take the heat out of things a little bit and I appreciate there's a difference between how you want the world to look like and how it does look like how you want it to be and how it is and I think so you know I'd like to like it where this type of thing wasn't done in an ideal world for me um, because you know it just feels like that's tech politics we don't want and we keep hearing it and then it happens anyway so really the politicians have got to take some responsibility for that. If it gets silly, then, you know, who's fired the starting pistol? I guess the thing that I think where some of the surprises come from on this is that people didn't expect Keir Starmer to do it. I yeah. Think, I think they expected him to, to sort of stay away from that. And I have some personal experience about this because I, in 2021, and I'm not saying this is why I lost. Um, I think I would have lost anyway. Um, but I decided not to not to go there at all. And there was some... Pretty personal stuff getting, you know, chucked out of Facebook about, so I say we, myself and the other candidate was called Jane. Um, but it was it was stuff that was patently untrue. And I found that really weird because I thought, well, I could just throw some stuff out there. I could make something up. But I didn't want to do that. So I didn't hit the other candidates at all. All I did was contact them and say, look, you know, stop libeling me, basically. Because it was blatantly untrue what they were saying and it was provable. <clears throat> now, at least what, Keir Starmer did in terms of Labour's ads, they were based on a political point. Um, they were they were framed in a way that wasn't the, the Prime Minister wouldn't enjoy, the Conservatives wouldn't enjoy, but it was a political point. So I think that was good. For, on that basis, there was a point. I think the problem I had with it was that people are not talking about the point they were making, they're talking about the ads. That's maybe something that we're going to see. I think it's probably, as you say, Carl, it's fired the starting pistol on, a, on what's going to be an unedifying election, clearly. It's going to be a fight in every sense of the word. Um, we can't complain about that now because we've started. <laughs> but maybe that was the, that was the tactics. Well, because, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd sort of, and I, I think um, Keir Starmer and and the Labour Party, and and certainly I would contest that we started it. I think that this is a kind of a, a marker um, in something that's sort of started earlier. And uh, some of the briefing, actually, if you looked when it first all came out, some of the briefing from. Uh, Keir's team was actually he he got to a point because of what Richie Sunak had been saying about you know the kind of him being a lefty lawyer, all the stuff on um, small boats, all the stuff that's come out um, from Suella Braverman in particular, who I think we might talk about a bit later, um, sort of was a bit of a tipping point for him, and that that was where they kind of realised you know we're not going to be playing nice whether you know whether others think that it's that's a proportional response i don't know but it doesn't i I don't think this is you know labor didn't start this um it this is just it i think it marks a moment where really we're sort of starting the the next election campaign and both parties are kind of gearing up for this kind of stuff and I, i think I mean, there's obviously, I think that, and that, and that was the briefing. I think there's a, it's also worth saying that there's, because we haven't touched on it yet, there is a kind of political logic to this. And again, I don't, I don't know if this was the right, it's, it's a strange time to do something like this, like just before the local elections, um, unless you're just kind of testing it to see how it works. And actually, you know, if, if this was a test, it's worked. Like, they've done what they wanted to do with it. 
it sort of, like you say, it's worked a little bit like a sort of, uh, as as we say, a kind of dead cat strategy in the, um, from the kind of Linton Crosby lexicon where you sort of, you know, throw a dead cat on the table and that people have to talk about it. It's, it sort of worked like that in that it's meant that Labour have been able to talk about what they wanted to talk about and they're not on the back foot on whether it's on small boats or um, the kind of wider culture war stuff, which the Tories are really, you know, starting to ramp up as well now. Um, so, but yeah, I think in that sense, it, it's it, it's worked. It's also um, one of the things that we've seen in the polling is that Rishi Sunak is still more popular, well, has is again more popular than the Conservative Party, um, and in some polls is more likable than Keir Starmer. I don't know whether the the the, the, the favoured PM stats are a bit closer, I think. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of what they're trying to do as well. Um, and again, I, that's not going to be done just by this one, one ad, one or two ads this week, but l- making sure that Rishi Sunak is tied to the record of the Conservative Party and that the part, Conservative Party, because the polls are still bad and very bad overall for the Conservative Party, uh, but making sure that the party can't use Rishi Sunak and his kind of brand to revive themselves in the, in, in, in the polls in the next 18 months. So I think there's there's definite kind of logic to it in terms of what they're trying to do. Um, I don't, it's, yeah, it's not what I would have done at this particular moment. And as you say, there's a, there's a, there are, dangers to it that aren't just sort of uh, political considerations it's about you know the kind of tenor and tone of our politics but yeah that was kind of where I got to it with it yeah I, th- I think as well the, the interesting thing for me is it shows his key is willing to do that like I say I think there was an element of surprise that caused us that I agree with you that you know this is the start and pistol of this next intense phase of what we're going to see um, and it shows that they are willing to go in the trenches. Um, I'm, I think it's a good point that you made about the, the tying Rishi Sunak to the record of the Tories because Keir Starmer did say that not just Rishi Sunak, but other PMs have managed to get out of responsibility in the eyes of the public. They've been in charge now for 13 years and nobody really ever talks about Osborne and Cameron anymore. Um, you know, if, if it had been, you know, if things had been very settled, they may have still been in charge all this time later. It's hard to imagine that, but they might have been. But they're really good at that renewal, and Labour will only win if they can break that. And it's an interesting, that key stat that you mentioned, that this, I think, is where this came from. Trying to get at Rishi Sunak personally is because historically, certainly recently, certainly since social media's been around and the 24-7 media, if the, the winner tends to be, and again, this is, without the polling differential that we've got here. The winner tends to be the most popular prime minister. It can be quite presidential in, in, in that way. So they can't afford to have Rishi Sunak sailing over here on that stat whilst everything else is good because people will gradually start thinking about who they want or who they don't want um, and then tactical voting will come in, all that sort of thing that, that will happen eventually. It's not just a case of who do I want to win. It's who do I not want to win as well. Um, do you think, Carl, additionally, um, we appreciate why this is going on and that it is going on. Do you think that we need to take the heat out of politics? And how, how do we do that? <laughs> it's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes and no is, is my answer to that. Um, I, it's a difficult one. Um, Generally, I mean, I, I don't think I have any, I don't think I'm going to claim to have any answers for how to do it. Um, I think in terms of the heat, I think that people should be able to campaign robustly. Um, generally, the, you know, governments in particular should be held to account. And if you're in a position, you know, like prime minister, you have to, you know, be prepared to kind of take that and stand not just for your record but for the record of your party. So something like you know the the Labour ad, Rishi Sunak's in a position where he can either, you know, he can he can either defend the record of his party or he can apologise for it, address it, and move on. I mean, he has the power to do both of those things. He is the Prime Minister. Um, he can respond to this ad and any future ads because they're about 
not just his record, but the record of his party. So I think that that has to be fair game. Um, I think it's always worth stepping back um, and just seeing how the impact of some of the language that comes out um, and how it affects people and how it affects the sort of overall view of kind of politics and our democracy because you know we're all we're all doing this to kind of try and make a difference and if some of that robustness sometimes um and, and, and sometimes people go way way too far and uh, you know we may well talk about that again later today or in the future um so i think it's it's always a balance um and it's not an easy one um but i think you know and there's yeah, I think I think pe- people are very passionate and often get very angry because actually politics has a direct impact impact on their lives. You know, if you're if you can't get a hospital appointment right now, or if you know you are someone who's been a victim of crime and you just you know, the police can't turn up to your house because they don't have the the resources, you're gen you know you're genuinely often angry about that, and somebody needs to kind of speak up for you, and that's. Yeah, you know, as the as the leader of the opposition, as the as the opposition party, that's what La- Labour are there to do. So, yeah, I I, w- I don't think that sh- I think yeah I don't think that we should step back from that or shy away from that. I do think one of the things you have to be able to do as a politician is to be able to do that, stand up for people and stand up for what you think is right, but also be able to have personal relationships and work with people that you disagree with. That is like the job of a politician. And I think sometimes people forget that. Um, and I hope that. And I it seems that Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak have had a half-decent working relationship, certainly better than him and Boris had. And I hope that continues even in the midst of what is this kind of right, what will be quite a robust exchange. Because I think those things are important because there are always things that need to get done that are outside of party politics or require that kind of cooperation so i think that that's sort of where i sit with it is i think yeah there's got to be a balance but you've got to be robust and you've got to as a politician as politicians generally whether you're councillor or, or mp or whatever you've got to be able to step away from it and um yeah have those personal relationships that mean you can get stuff done and it, as in your case don't bloody slander people <laughs> yeah i mean it would have been nice but you know <coughs> I, I'm not expected either to live in a world where, you know, drop off your leaflets, I'll deliver them all and save you the problem and we'll get one for each party and I'll I'll make sure to put yours at the top, just to be fair, you know. Um it's I don't expect that world, but I do think, you know, that it's a, and there's a distinction between the two. There's there's a, like I say, the the way that we'd like the world to be, the way it is. Um for me it's better to take the heat out um as much as you can and make sure that, that is it's always based on issues. And I think we just about okay. Like it's a, it's a personal attack, but it was based on a political point. It wasn't saying, you know, Rishi Sunak is a so and so, and this is, you know, he's a horrible person and stuff like that. So you've always got, like I said, there's always a danger that you go too far, but hopefully that doesn't happen. But I think it will dial up. Um, I expect, you know, a robust response from the Conservatives, and it'll be interesting to see what that is and when it is, and I'm sure it's going to be, it's going to be fun. But uh, I think anyone who's involved in in the campaigning side of things over the next sort of 18 months is in for a, in for some uh, interesting experiences. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the sort of two final things I'd say on it is, one, and you've touched on this already, it kind of shows Keir Starmer's ruthless streak, which I think he's shown at various points <laughs> since he's become leader. Combat's the weak and, argument, doesn't it? I mean, certainly. Um, yeah, and I think that's one to watch both for... Um, for us as Labour supporters, but also for the Conservatives, you know, it's a it's a shot across the bows in that respect. Um, if they were thinking that they could, you know, walk this narrow path to, uh, uh, you know, improve the economy and then stoke up some culture wars uh, to win the next election, Keir's sort of shown actually he's willing to step into that fight. Uh, the other thing I think in terms of the success of the ads, again, have I got news for you last night? Um, (laughs) Have I got news for you last night? Uh, Just quickly. Um, They they talked about it and they had their own, they came up with their own versions. Rishi Sunak thinks that, (laughs) yeah, I think the last one was Rishi Sunak thinks that prime ministers can be five foot six or under. (laughs) 
God. See, that's probably a worse one. Yeah, I give that one. <laughs> so that it it became a joke, and I think that's the sort of sweet spot. If you if you if what you're looking for is for something like that to be talked about, they managed to keep it in the news for basically a week and have shadow ministers talking about it. Not always. You know, some of the shadow ministers didn't weren't didn't do a great job because they weren't completely on board at the beginning. But it was that was what they were talking about, and it got that kind of slightly further reach with something that have I got news for you, which obviously is a news program, but it's much more kind of you know it meets it reaches a much wider audience than just BBC News. Yeah, excellent. Well, we'll move on then uh, to our next topic of discussion, um, which is related to some announced Labour plans for the High Street, and this is something that I'm very interested in um, as someone who often walks through places that used to be very full and most of the shops are closed. Uh, with And sometimes I think Durham Council did a initiative where they had the, the shutters painted. So it looks very nice, but it's still shut. Um, <clears throat> but Labour did some announcements. I'll just quickly blast through a couple of them. Uh, they want to cut business rates for small businesses. This was all announced in a visit between Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves to Great Yarmouth the other day. Uh, cut business rates for small businesses paid for by tax rises on online companies such as Amazon and they want to scrap business rates altogether in the long term. Uh, they want to introduce a £700 million voucher scheme which will allow small businesses to make energy efficiency measures, for example, installing double glazing or buying electric vehicles. Uh, they want to tackle late payments to small businesses by forcing big business to publish information on payment practices in their annual reports. Uh, they want to give local councils powers to take over empty shops and reopen them without consent, from necess- well, without necessarily having consent from the property owners themselves of these commercial units. Um, and they want to introduce plans, or they will introduce plans, uh, town centre patrols, sorry, as part of their pledge to recruit 13,000 more neighbourhood police and PCSOs. Um, interesting point on the a particularly interest call was to give local council powers to take over empty shops and reopen them without the consent from property owners. That's a big one. They need to have a clear plan for rents and also they could be open to legal challenge because that's that's a bit of a rabbit hole for me, that one. But uh, yeah, lots of plans for the high street. What was your thoughts? I mean, I thought the big one was scrapping business rates entirely. I mean, that's billions of pounds. Well, that was more of an aspiration, wasn't it, in the long term? They haven't actually well, yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's a sort of not going to happen isn't it that's that's what that is that's it i mean yeah, it's a <laughs> I, mean, I mean i mean yeah, I, mean, it, I suppose it's doable but it seems like a weird it, it would be it's a weird thing to do given where the kind of tax base is and the hole you'd have to plug on a kind of annual basis to do it. i think reforming reducing i think is a good idea i think it's going to be difficult to do again like it'll, if they're if labor's going to do it you have to use some political capital to do it and it'll have to be done fairly early. If it gets delayed, there's a, a danger. And, you know, the Conservatives have talked about that, you know, various governments have talked about reforming, changing business rates, as they have done with kind of council tax and things like that. It's not an easy thing because there's a kind of a formula. You've got to, and there's winners and losers, whatever you do. And it's a big and largely reliable source of uh, tax revenue. So it's not going to be an easy one. Um but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it works. I think it, yeah, I think it'd be good to do. I think there's a, um, there's some potential real benefits to local high streets because business rates are a real drag in some areas, in a lot of areas really, as we as we kind of know. Um, the rebalancing towards the kind of uh, Amazons of this world, um, again, it. It'd be it'll just be interesting to see how they how it works when and I don't think we'll get any detail really until they get, they get into government and we will get into government as we know uh, <laughs> next yeah. time around. <laughs> um, but again, like that's the kind of thing that has will have consequences further down the line um, for how people uh, live their lives. So there's been such such a huge, you know, particularly since the pandemic, such a huge increase in kind of home deliveries, the kind of Amazon Prime kind of stuff. Um, and that, if they do that properly, that will add quite a lot of cost to those kind of businesses, and it might make it that bit more difficult to get your uh, whatever it is your hair straighteners delivered <laughs> within 24 hours. Uh, whether people, you know, 
Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting for you, Malcolm, but, it, you know, the few years you might be drawing your hair out. <laughs> Could happen. <laughs> but whether there's kind of political consequences for that or whether actually, you know, the rebalancing and the revival of the high streets, uh, assuming it happens, uh, is is the thing. I think it's all kind of a... I, I find it fascinating, and I could probably talk about it for way too long and more than people listening would want to hear. But I think it's a... I think it's a good thing to be trying to tackle and i really hope that labor put some um time and energy into it early on uh to get to get something to happen um i think the, on the kind of broader stuff i think it probably needs to be more like if you did genuinely want to kind of revive the high streets there needs to be a bit more thought about what high streets look like now and whether whether actually you're trying to rebalance from sort of the Amazons towards the high street and get more kind of high street shops or actually whether the high street just looks differently. And I think it's to your point about local giving local councils powers to take over into shops. Again, that's it's a re, some of this is a re-announcement as well. So that specifically is a re-announcement. Um, I think it's complicated. You need to think about how it's funded and what that then becomes. Because actually, if the, if you're rebalancing high streets, what councils could do is they could create more kind of community spaces, uh, but those spaces need to be funded. They're not going to necessarily be commercially viable always. Um, So, yeah, I think that all of it kind of needs a bit more thought. Um, I think some of that will be Labour going, well, actually, we're just devolving this to councils and you can sort it out. but and it may be that councils are left to think those things through themselves but they'll probably need more powers and probably a bit more money to be able to do this kind of stuff i don't know what you think do you want to scrap business rates altogether in the long term kia starmer does (laughs) (laughs) i was just gonna say (laughs) i had to get that in sorry um i just remember when i was a councillor um I remember that they're growing about Amazon Prime and how much things have changed. I remember getting like a series of, of emails and calls from residents about um, concerns. This is during the, the like the real hardcore restrictions when we weren't allowed out at all. And I start getting emails from people saying <clears throat> they're really worried about dog napping. Dogs in gardens are getting getting dog napped. And I got a few of these emails, and and even, and even I was kind of moved enough. My mum had just recently got a dog, and I said. Be careful with them in the garden, you know, like I'm hearing about these things. And it got big enough where I got in touch with the police and said, like, I'm getting lots of calls. Like, is this a massive issue? Like, because obviously the price of dogs went up and puppies and things like that. And a lot of people got. And they came back and said, we haven't had any. But what it is, is people are concerned about is the big surge in white vans delivering parcels down the street. So they're cruising down the street and they're seeing these vans in the estates up here where I live. And then they're sort of looking for the addresses they're delivered to, so they're sort of slowly walking, driving down the street. And it's happening multiple times a day, and people are thinking they're searching for dogs. But even though I'm not saying it never happens, I'm sure you know, dog napping sadly does happen. But on the whole, it was people delivering parcels in unmarked white vans, and they were in the estates, and everyone else was in the house, you know. So um, it's interesting how that is just one example about how the it's changed and how that's got so much bigger. And <clears throat> I know we had Fraser on a couple of weeks ago. Um, for a great interview, if you check that out, if you haven't listened to it already, if you're listening, um, where he lives in Wellington is just a, it's a, Wellington's basically just a very long, going for three quarters of a mile, just one long high street, and most of it is, I think there's something like 14 takeaways. There's loads of takeaways in Wellington, and there's a couple of bookies, and but there's a lot of like old shops that used to have like some real discount foods to shops, like just a single unit, and a lot of these have shut now, and it's just really sad. So I think we need to think more about. When I was on the council, we used to talk about like hubs where you'd have like places where people would want to go. For example, like uh, say McDonald's, where you know a lot of people travel through and visit. And around that, start to strategically place other things that you can almost entice them into on the way out. Think more strategically about you know place and place making and stuff like that, which I think is going to be how to do it. But <clears throat> if I was to ever look at getting a unit, one of the big problems I'd have is the additional expenses of having one, stuff like business rates. Or just rates if you're there. You know, does that say you don't even have to have a business, you're just an office, you've got to pay it as well. So yeah, it's a big commitment, but we need to think about how we make it attractive to people to have it, because at the minute it's just so easy to have an online presence and an online business, none of the overheads. Why you know, it's almost a case of if you're selling a lot online, why would you be in an in an area? It feels like you're not getting 
the value for money in terms of you're restricted for pass and trade in person. Whereas the vast majority of business these days is, is very much online. You can't really survive as a business if you're not online these days, which is totally different to 30 years ago. Yeah, no, I think it's sort of part of, part of my question about, um, and it may be that there isn't a kind of legislative or tax solution to this problem, but the, the, the question is about what, what the high street kind of looks like. Um, and I don't think we've kind of quite, cracked what it looks like in this world like you say where you've got these low overheads with and you can grow a business quite quickly online um there is a there's um there's a company actually that exists like a a prop tech company that exists that that exclusively does um kind of pop-up shops for kind of online businesses so if you've got an online business you can sort of rent somewhere for two three weeks or even a few days and have that sort of high street presence and get the kind of um the kind of passing trade and, and get your kind of profile onto the high street but without the kind of long-term costs and i think yeah things like that you know it they they can exist with a kind of normal high street but how you kind of balance that i think that's gonna that's the complexity of this kind of business rates piece how does it affect things like that um and actually is that something yeah there's a sort of bigger question is is that something that we actually want <laughs> in our high streets or is it going to cause more problems than it solves so yeah I, I think it's interesting i think there's another um another bit and this might i, I don't know if you want to come in <clears throat> if there's anything else you want to say on this point but this i could make a really tenuous link to the next story um, <laughs> by my next point <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. Uh, really tenuous link to the next point so, to, so one of the one of the aspects of this is um tackling late payments to small businesses. And uh, uh, those who are avid followers of politics for a long time, like me, will remember that this was a policy of the Labour government in 2009, um, pushed by Peter Mandelson, no less, as uh, business, Secretary of State of Business and um, First Minister of State and General Overlord of everything up at the time. <laughs> Um, so it is a bit of a it's, I think it's one of those which is a sort of bit of a blast from the past and I think there's a few of those things um, permeating through our politics of the, at the moment one of which is um, as of this morning uh, there's some a senior conservative has been briefing out that Rishi Sunak is planning uh, a inheritance tax cut at some point I was briefed to Bloomberg um, saying, and this, this senior conservative said that cutting inheritance tax could be their secret weapon, uh, shoring up their vote potentially in the blue wall seats versus the Lib Dems and creating a dividing line with Labour, um, to which I thought, firstly, this is a policy uh, that George Osborne announced in 2007 and famously helped to derail the election that never was uh, that Gordon Brown was thinking of calling when he was initially ahead in the polls. Um, and secondly, that, um, you know, they immediately briefed it out to the press, which both of which I think means that it's not actually very secret, this weapon, is it? <laughs> it's not, it's not something they've had in the pipeline for Just about a weapon <laughs> for 16, maybe 17 years. Um, and they're quite happy to to shout about so um yeah so I, it, it's another one where it's a bit of a kind of blast from the past it feels it and it's one where actually it you know and it worked for george osborne it's the kind of thing that's sort of headline grabbing the particularly the likes of the telegraph and you know the kind of center right-leaning press will love um whether it's the right policy, I'm not convinced, but uh, that's another thing. Um, but I think if you're Keir Starmer and Labour, you can basically just point and laugh and say, this is taking me 17 years to do. <laughs> you know, they're always, always lowering the bar for delivery, this government, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I, I can hear their kind of retort to that. You know, if you hadn't left us in such a mess, you know, we would have... It sooner, but yeah, I mean, the, I always had an issue, and I've, you know, make no apologies for harping on about this again. We never fought that enough. The blame we should have gone back for that during the Ed Miliband years, but that is long gone. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, the, the the they're always quite good at coming up with ways to benefit very wealthy people um, as a secret weapon. I think 
the problem they have is voters slow down the scale that are now returning to their red roots as they should have been all along by the way <laughs> but we, we got Brexit done so. uh, and so that's all worked out really well so we can go back to growth again like, like Liz um, but yes yeah, so it's it's interesting I don't think that cuts through to the type of voter that they're going to lose it's sure again it's always a mistake and Labour made this mistake during the Corbyn years among many others you appeal to your own base, which is great, but you don't win anything for it. You just make your supporters happier. Um, and I think I feel like this will do that because I think the and I'm going to make a fool of myself by guessing what it is. The inheritance tax threshold is something like 325k. Because I did a, I was studying for a mortgage qualification that I never finished uh, before I became a public affairs beast. <laughs> um, so. Yes, I believe it's quite high anyway. So the vast majority of houses sold, certainly in my region, uh, you don't get inheritance tax because it doesn't sell high enough. Or the assets. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've just Googled it, and you're exactly right. So nicely remembered. Maybe I would have passed. Well, 2023, 2024. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then after that, the rate is usually 40% or anything above this amount. So, yeah, there's a... The, I think the... So I only read the Twitter thread because I don't have access to Bloomberg. Uh, but the idea was that either... It's tough at the top, everyone. I tried to cite, I tried to get the free... It didn't... Anyway. <laughs> but the, I think the idea... There, there's no uh, sort of actual detail at this point. They're, they're just sort of... There's some some very um, senior conservative that likes the attention of journalists that's put this out there. Um and it's either a raise in the threshold, which I think is what George Osborne originally proposed. He wanted it to go up to like a million or something, you know, make it much higher. I think he did raise it, but obviously not by uh, uh, as much as he in, uh, eventually uh, originally intended. Um, but yeah, or, or a cut to the 40%. So a cut, the actual cut to the rate of inheritance tax after that point. Uh, so it's that, all of that is kind of open at the moment. But yeah, like you say, a lot of people it won't affect at all. Um, but it is a kind of core vote strategy. It's, uh, I think it was kind of telling that they they didn't say that it would help them uh, in Labour seats. They just said it would create a dividing line with Labour. Um, and actually, it's more about shoring up what's now the kind of blue wall. An interesting point to make on that, Carl, is that given Labour's polling numbers, some of their core vote is at risk. So me dismissing that out of hand as a pointless tactic is, is probably not giving us credit for where we are in the polls. They probably do need to protect at this point. So, you know, yeah, it's, it appeals to their core vote, but their core vote is a bit shakier than it used to be. Well, and also if you sort of think about it in the round and what and the problems that we're going to have in the run-up to the next election, I think we might be talking about it uh, later on um, or touching on it, uh, the voter ID, um, the, what the voter ID, some of the... Yeah, some of the impetus behind that is basically stripping out largely younger voters or people that are less likely to have ID. So if they can shore up what is what is their kind of older core vote, people that are going to be you know thinking about their inheritance tax and what they're going to pass on to their kids, um, and make sure those people turn out because those people are the people that most reliably turn out in elections. That it, there are kind of quite a lot of marginal gains that sort of add together there particularly in marginal seats so it's it's not yeah it's not without political sense um even if it yeah looks a bit desperate given it's recycling an old policy and very focused on what like you say is their is their core voters or has been their core vote yep no i agree they're running scared i love it <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a great way of uh, moving on to the next one. So yeah, this is it's quite a serious one. This one, it's um quite a, an interesting intervention from Baroness Saeed Avazi, who uh, was a Tory Party chairman way back in 2010, uh, 2012. I remember regular appearances from her on Question Time way back in the day, which makes me feel old. Um, <clears throat> and she was interviewed on, well, been on a number of media outlets. And she was interviewed by James O'Brien at LBC. Um, and this particular video is available to watch online. <clears throat> Excuse me. She criticised um, Swala Braverman, the Home Secretary, for turning almost, and I quote, turning almost every issue 
into a cultural race war. Um, she called Swala Breverman's rhetoric racist and said that nobody could be protected uh, by the pigment of their skin on making racist comments, uh, which was quite a, you know, uh, James O'Brien commented that he didn't feel comfortable saying that as a, as a white man. Um, which is a, a nuance of this that, that's quite where you find yourself being very careful with how you say stuff. Um, and on LBC, uh, Baroness Farsi said that calling a fellow woman of colour racist was not something she did loosely. But she finished the interview by saying, We need a grown up in that role. We certainly don't need someone trying to perform a Trump tribute act. So, very, very harsh criticism in a, in a political sphere of Suella Braverman and I think she went on in other media outlets interviews to say that she, she didn't feel that Suella Braverman was up to the job um, Carl this is quite a, a very very serious critique by, by a respected parliamentarian in the Conservative Party um, and we should remember I think that Suella Braverman got the, how she got the job at the start um, the fact she'd been fired the week before by Liz Truss and then she's come in and has really rabble-roused around these issues in a way that a lot of people have found quite offensive. So this, this to me, was seemed like a significant intervention and put a lot of pressure on Rishi Sunak. And I'm sitting here now fully conscious of how careful I have to be in what I'm saying. I'm going to give you the opportunity to hang yourself and say, how do you feel about this? Uh, it seems to me like a really serious uh, issue for, for Swell Bradman and also Rishi Sunak as well. Um, I mean, I, th- I think the the rhetoric and the accusation is definitely a serious one, and I don't and I don't think Baroness Farsi will have made it lightly. I think it's worth saying that she, as a politician, one that she's in the House of Lords, so it doesn't necessarily have the same pressures that uh, an MP has. She has a lot more freedom to say what she wants, and um, but also that she's been quite far away from the Conservative Party for a long time. She was very, she was very much part of the kind of Cameroon project, and I think since the sort of 2016 referendum and the you know Cameron Osborne going, she has been in a, a you know occasional critic of the government. She's you know, she's got a regular slot on Steph's packed lunch on Channel Four. Uh, she's she, yeah she likes to. Um, she she's had a sort of separate career in kind of broadcasting alongside being a conservative politician. So I don't think she has the kind of sway in the Conservative Party that she would have had six seven years ago, but maybe before. You know, she you know she's uh, she had her time and and it's not now. And I think she sort of knows that. So she she does feel she has that. Um, that freedom to speak out and has used it before. But I think this is probably, yeah, as you say, this is quite strong language and directed quite specifically at Suella Braverman um, at a time where she is, Suella is being very vocal. Um, we've touched on it already today um, on these kind of culture war issues. Uh, she's, it, the, it seems very much that she's in that role to do that job. That's why, that's why she's there. Um, she, you know, to kind of stoke these fires and and be that kind of voice for what is a a kind of a part of the Conservative Party, um, and potentially, you know, and and clearly, uh, part of the Conservative next election campaign as well. I mean, I think Rishi Sunak has stepped away slightly from saying he'll be able to stop the stop the boats, the small boats, by next year. It's the first time I think he's since he committed to it a few weeks ago <laughs> that he's. Um, refuse to recommit uh, to that um but yes yeah, so I, I think it's yeah it's it, it's a interesting point in time that she's made this intervention i think it'll probably go unresponded to and things will move on and it will be something else that finishes off the career of Suella braverman and it may well be the next election yeah i think i would agree that i don't expect this to be uh, existential because in a similar way for Swala Bradman, in a, in a similar way to after a while, like I'm always, I'm thinking about like the tr- sort of she made that Trump tribute act, which didn't get wide circulation actually, and I thought it was maybe the the, the really sort of maybe the harshest critique aside from the racist thing, um, but obvious because nobody likes to be compared to you know if you're in normal politics, but in some ways 
Um, I expect that she will last the course. I think there's been plenty of opportunities and reason, if any doubt existed in Rishi Sunak's mind of whether he was going to stick with her, to have done something already. So I don't expect this to be the the straw to put the camel's back in in, in that respect. But um, yeah, it was a, to me. I was I think again as a as a politician-y person, I saw the the significance of this from the angle of a fellow woman of colour to make that about another, and she referenced that and was asked about that, and it clearly she said it wasn't easy for her to do that. It was something that was a significant thing, and she thought a lot about it. And you, I respect that completely because I think uh, you know everyone who watches that will see that that is not something that happens very often, and and will be very difficult for someone to do that. Do you want to come in? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I think I think there's a thing about the, the sort of the fracturing of the Tory tribe over time. I mean, we know, we all know that politics has changed a lot over the last few years, particularly the referendum. Um, I think sort of drove a lot of that Trump to some degree you know those things happened in tandem and the kind of rhetoric from you know the US that he was pumping out had an impact on our politics as well um, so I think it is interesting because if you listen to Saeed Awasi on a kind of day-to-day basis and I had a, a few weeks at the beginning of the year where I was around for Steph's pack lunch so I got to I got to <laughs> dip in and out of that um she she is the uh, she is a like she's a Tory through and through in in most of her views you know, um, but she's been cut adrift from the current Conservative Party and I think you know the polls show that there are more and more people in that position, and whether they can piece back given given the number of times as you sort of mentioned earlier they've renewed and changed and shifted, um, and they seem to be trying to do sort of walk a tightrope between the kind of economic competence of George Osborne and some of the kind of wilder rhetoric of the of the kind of vote leave campaign um up to the next election I just I'm, I'm I don't know how they're going to put that coalition a big enough coalition back together if somebody like her who is a true blue Tory is that unhappy and is willing to make those kind of statements you know we saw some of that um, in the lead up to 2019, but I think it's it feels like it's ingrained now, and it's whether they can bring enough of those people back or, or bring new people in. And I don't I don't know who those new people are to to build a big enough coalition for the next election. I think the the person they suggested in that interview was the likely successor to uh, Rishi Sunak was Kemi Kemi Badenoch, um, which again is, is is a testament to where the Conservative Party's gone. What um, Baroness Valsi also said was that if the party's changed in all recognition through selections and through elections, of if you look at the, the type of Conservative that was in David Cameron's cabinet, no less David Cameron himself, you had people like George Osborne, William Hague, Philip Hammond, um, you know, Andrew Lansley, Justine Greening. So a very different type of Conservative to what is now in it and leading it and is at the forefront of it. And that's come about basically since Brexit and since people stood down during the Theresa May area and then a lot of new Conservatives were elected in 2019 who had a certain view of of Brexit and of how politics should, should be transacted and that reflects more the type of politics that Suella Braverman and, and and similar politicians expose really and I think that's um, it's, it's, it highlights a big change from when Baroness Farsi was around at the top of the party. Um, so yeah, it was quite an interesting uh, side point to make on that as to how much things mm. have changed, and we see it, but we don't always appreciate. I think how what what the end product is, and that this is the type of thing that is the the end product of that transition over time. Yeah, I mean they've lost a lot of what would have either been or become kind of the big beasts of the party just by the sort of brutality of the churn. Um, people like David Gork and. Um, you know Philip Hammond. Remember him? He was in. He was the sort of trusted, safe pair of hands that was in a lot of Secretary of State positions. Obviously, he was Chancellor under Theresa May, um, and people like him have just been sort of regularly cast <laughs> aside <laughs> to where to get to where we've got to now. Um, and I do, I guess, to the the sort of wider kind of strategy culture war type thing. I do. We. I think we do have to start, particularly on this podcast, wondering how it's going to impact on Worcester Man and Stevenage Woman. I don't know if you saw the Labour Together 
<laughs> opinion research last week. Um, but I think I, it just should have maybe included like... it, actually. <laughs> hey? Should have maybe included it in the show. <laughs> well, I mean, we've got enough to talk about, Malcolm. I've, I've already brought it in, it's fine. <laughs> well, I must say that there's a very big um, labour surge in Durham units. <laughs> like me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just don't see like how all of it really kind of coalesces to get a yeah to the average voter really. Um, but yeah, I think I'm sure we'll talk about it. That kind of I think it's it's worth sort of thinking about that because I think that we you know there's there's always a question as to whether those named groups of people are actually that useful. But it might be a useful way for us to kind of think about some of this stuff um, and how it might how it might be kind of uh, landing in the Lotto's office, the leader of the opposition's office. I'm gonna I'm just doing a very quick search. I'm gonna do it live. Um, uh, it's not gonna work, but I will try. But we're just gonna go for it. Um, no, not gonna do it. Um, but yeah, there's, there's somebody was talking. I'll try and find it for next week. But someone was talking about five groups of voters that we'd have to win. And it was stuff like you know the nationalist right, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that was that was the yeah that was it yeah. Yeah, I'll see if I can find them for next week because I haven't got them to hand. But yeah, it was really interesting to apparently if you win, I think three of those five groups you win the election or something like that. It's a quite interesting take on it, which I'll try and find. But um, we're going to stay on the election uh, theme. We're, we're segwayed like true professionals today, Carl. Um, we're staying <laughs> on the election theme, um, and this is a one where I actually think we might have. Disagreement, Carl. I think I'm potentially, I'm sensing a, a, a sort of a debate here. But, but voter ID has been brought in for the first time on May the fourth. Voters will need to show identification before they are given their voting ballots to cast their vote. Um, and critics of it are saying that this is designed. I think Carl mentioned it earlier uh, that it, this will make it harder for people to vote and may dissuade people to vote, particularly younger people. And there's also concerns that polling staff could be subject to abuse if someone appears to vote and are told that they can't. Um, and I just wondered, Carl, I guess to bring you in first on this for our comment, do you agree with the the the, the voter ID as a as an initiative? And what's your views on the comments made by others I've just outlined there? Um, I don't agree with it. I think it's a, a fundamentally a stupid policy, not based in evidence or fact, and it's designed to uh, cut out voters that the that the Conservatives think won't vote for them. Um, and I think it's that's evidenced by the fact of the kinds of ID that you need to um, be able to vote. Um, they're weighted heavily towards the kinds of ID that older people typically would carry. Um, then yeah, you know, student IDs aren't allowed. Um, we, uh, you know, um, for example. Um, so I just I I don't I think it's anti-democratic. I think it's you know uh, overall. I think it could be you know if you if you if there was a real problem, and I don't think there is. But if the you know even if you're trying to tackle what is a very small amount of kind of in-person voter fraud. Um, you could do it in a much better way. Mm. Um, you could provide people with ID, for example, that is that is usable and uh, cheap or free um, to be able to do it. And they're not doing that. It's also a huge change to bring in all at once. It's, I think it's better that it's coming at a local election rather than a general election. But nobody of any age is used to this so people will and there hasn't been a huge you know we know about it but most people don't and won't until they rock up to the polling station and go oh actually i can't vote and so i think you know there needs to be a much bigger communications campaign about it and there needs uh, and the uh, the first election or two that it's brought in i would say you need to have some level of flexibility because um it's it's a huge change for people um people don't think about politics and often until the day that they vote or the week before. Um, and so they're not going to be prepared for this. And the government should be doing more, but they're not because they're trying to, I think, and I think that, and this is the view of campaigners and people that you've already quoted, trying to prevent people they don't want to vote from voting. Mm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's, it's a stronger position than I have, if I'm honest. But, <laughs> but I totally understand your points and I think the nuance of what you said I can't 
disagree with in terms of there may be a better way to phase it in if they want to do it. I think the principle of needing to ensure that it's a correctly cast vote is, is okay. Um, because I think that if you extend that into other things and say, for example, I remember working for a betting company in about 2004 and the shop up the road had the best security system you could you could buy. Um, and we were just a, a, and to this day, actually, even though they've redesigned the shop, I went in not so long ago and it's still the same. And we, we were just a desk um, and a safe in tills. And I said, well, them up the road, they've, they've got a better deal. They've got the full bank style. I mean, I know some banks have actually gone back from this now, but at the time it was, you know, fl- floor to ceiling, fully secured. I said, how come they've got that? And we haven't. I said, oh, because they, 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 they got robbed. I was like, all right, so they'll come and he said, but if, if if we get robbed, they'll give us the security package as well. And I was like, mm, feels the wrong way around. So <clears throat> I'm not sure I fully buy the the principle. There's always a difference between principle and practice, and I get that. So for me, the principle of wanting people to have ideas shouldn't be a problem if, if you're doing your vote properly. However, people don't always carry it. I'm lucky I always carry it um, alongside all of my cash if anyone wants to rob me. Um, but I... I I've always got it, um, but I appreciate not everyone has. I do think there's a problem, Carl. I totally agree with you when, if you turn up and you're told, sorry, can't vote, they'll say, oh, bloody all the same anyway. Sorry, not going to bother. Um, like you said, it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for me, me to forget that I would go home, find ID, and go back and say, I'm bloody voting today. Whereas the vast majority yeah. of people have spoken, you know, we've all met people, haven't we, that have gone, oh, was, election was that Thursday? Oh, I was going to vote as well. And they completely miss yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, I get that. So, whilst I think the principle's okay, you know, if you're doing it right, it should be an issue. I think there's a, and where we probably do agree, there's an argument for suspending it for the general. I don't think they will, yeah. but I think they maybe should. Well, I think, well, to sort of add to your point about people that that won't be able to do it, like I've, I've knocked on people's doors at sort of eight o'clock at night and basically said they can't go vote because their kids are in bed and they want to do it earlier. If that person had tried to go in the morning, they didn't have their ID, ID and then they had to go to work, then they had to pick their kids up and put them to bed. Like, there's no other time that they could, they can't go back and they just don't, won't have the time to go back, regardless of whether they, they have the intention or not. So um, I think that those kind of practical problems will just happen. Um, and again, it's a kind of demo, demographically. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's there, there is such a, I mean, this is from the playbook of the US Republicans. This is why this is the, the Conservatives are doing this. It, I think it's probably more effective in the States because people in the States don't typically have passports. Um, so they can restrict in the, at the same level that we do. So I think we have in the UK we have about ninety three percent of people have passports, which again leaves us a good se- a good seven percent of people that don't potentially don't have any ID unless they've got a driving license. Yeah. Um, I haven't got a passport. Um, I've got a driving license, but no passport. Yeah. So I think yeah. That, um, I've lost my thread now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the professional level of podcasting that we've got um so yeah i think i think that's um that that's a real kind of issue um and i think yeah that that's the sort of motivation behind it, isn't it? it's it's the uh, the other thing i was going to say is that i think there's a kind of there's a hypocrisy to this um and it's sort of talking about the kind of conservatives record over the last 13 years I mean, and uh, you know, I, I'm someone who's changed my view on this actually. Um, but Conservative coalition government, when they came in, scrapped ID cards. Yes. Um, uh, that was yeah. And if if they'd have continued with the Labour government's proposals for ID cards, so everybody had ID cards, and it was a requirement to have them, then actually bringing in this kind of measure would be mm-hmm. you know wouldn't be a p- particularly big step forward but they actively scrapped that yeah. and then are creating a requirement for the, for an id card uh, that doesn't exist you know there 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 are obvious other kinds of id out there but they're not ids i forms of identification that you have to have or that are necessarily affordable for people passports are quite expensive now mm. uh, you know provisional driving license why would you get one unless you were learning to drive yeah, all of those kind of things. There, there isn't a a 
simple accessible form of id that can do this job so i i think it's a huge policy failure and massive massive hypocrisy on the part of the conservatives but you know that's me no no i think <laughs> again the vast I, I think i agree on a practical level if, if there's no id that everyone has then there's an inclusivity issue and i couldn't ever deviate from that i've always been surprised ever since i started voting that i just walked in and got given a ballot that's me there right because most of the things in life you have to prove it now it's not always easy to do that but like bank accounts you don't think other, other important things we need i can't think of anything else where you just walk in and get given something um so that that's why i'm not surprised by the change but i completely agree with the the complexities and the nuances of actually making it work in practice which i think there is an issue of um but i think the principle i'm okay with because it, it's pretty much consistent across everything else that we do that's important we have to produce id for everything i can't literally i can't think of anything that we do aside from maybe buying food and goods where we have to and even sometimes then you've got to you know you go and try and buy a set of knives from the shop without you know it's different things that you have to do but yeah I yeah, think there are yeah no i mean you're you're exactly right on that id point and it and it's and i wouldn't you know put the current government in charge of this but there are you could use your phone there are there to id you could they could create a specific app that allows you to vote and that could check your id i mean i have a government tax account that they they create i mean i think they exactly i've got an email yeah. yeah, they got. I got an email to say that it's changing, but they they sort of verify you through the post office or whatever. You can do exactly all of that is possible, but they're not doing that. They're creating a requirement without creating a solution to meet it. Yeah, and it's just not on. Carl's sitting on the fence, everyone. On this one, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like it. I love it. Um, all all good points. All good points. Um, okay, so that almost wraps it up. We we do because we've. We've um, had a, a, the odd occasion of having an actual life this week. We've actually lasted until Saturday before we've done the show. So today is the, the day of the Grand National. Um, so I'm sure everyone's excited about that. I actually got a question wrong on, on the chase. I wasn't on the chase. I was just watching it on TV. Um, and it said, what time is the Grand National normally on? Now, being a former bookies, as I said, uh, but being a for, former bookies manager years ago, I actually thought the answer was 3.45. But apparently... 5.50 is the new current time you can expect this to start. The Grand National is the sixth race of seven. Um, and I remember actually, I, I, did, I wrote a piece call in the paper, I did a comment paper, and they posted it with a um, with a picture of horses jumping over the fence because I said the fences are quite dangerous because some of the sport, and I'm doing the quotation fingers here, of the race is often will my horse get round um and there's very often fatalities because they use very very high fences um and obviously a lot of horses do fall and a couple of them if they're seriously injured they have to be put down because you know it's hard for them to recover um and it's a very long race and it's quite a dangerous race as well um and the, so yeah there's, there are lots of campaigns around that but leaving that to one side in terms of appreciating that some people are against it and actually, I was for a while. I, well, I wasn't against the race, and I felt they could make they could reduce the fence size and still make it a fun race, rather than it being. I don't like the idea of part of the sport being oh my horse has fallen yet, which I think is is not great. And I think it's maybe maybe they could do that slightly slightly more improved way. I think, um, but I don't know whether you've had the chance, Carl, to to pick out any any winners. I'm going to put it out there <laughs> that I'm going for Noble Yates and Coco Beach. No, just a complete shot in the dark, by the way. Um, so please don't bet on the basis that I've given a tip out. Um, but you know, I, know. Yeah, I haven't. I picked some losers. I've not. Well, uh, Carl, the vast majority of horses I've picked are, are definitely those. Um, oh, we got two. There's two at twenty-five to one, which you know, given we're a politics podcast, one is one is the the big dog. The big which, dog. Uh, yeah, I remember Operation Big Dog from. Probably I love how these ago. are themed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and and related to that, lifetime ambition. Oh uh, wow! <laughs> and I think you know, I'm hoping that both of those go, yeah, come last. No, well, I like I said, my my really sort of like snowflakey wish for these things is that all the horses get round. There's always that kind of. I must admit, but as somebody who's watched a 
thousands of horse races from my job in the past. That when they first when they let them off and they're thundering down towards the first fence, there's always an adrenaline burst for me. And then you just hope they all get over safely. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, interesting. If you're watching that, do enjoy that race, and hopefully one of our four selections will will come in. I'm actually going to have a bet, Carl. Um, I'm on five pound each way. On on, I'm going to have it on all of these horses. So we will see how I get on. I always lose some money on this race every year. It's a one the one horse race I have a a wager on. So I'm going to bet on those four, and if I win, that's down to Carl. And I'll put it into podcast funds. <laughs> Our extensive podcast funds. Which currently stand at the princely sum of zero. So we might be able to get off to a winning start. Who knows? It's not the best strategy for gaining funds to bet them, I suppose. But, you know. Um, so sorry, Alison. It's all, it's, all, it's all we've got at the moment, Mark. <laughs> it's going to blow up soon. In fact, I should probably, before we leave, I am going to quickly check the stats on our podcast because... We always do this. We do it offline normally, but I'm going to do it live. Um, and we make if it's big, I'll tell everyone what. It's it's yeah, two. It's not bad. About about what we had before, so I'm happy with that. Right. Um, that just about wraps things up. We've just gone over the hour mark. Uh, for another week, and very grateful for you all for for tuning in. Carl, before we wrap up, do you have any final words? Uh, no. That, that's the shorter version of what I expected. But uh, always great to be on with you. And that's it, everyone. Thanks again. And we will look forward to seeing you all back on our normal time of Thursdays. Well, Fridays at 5 p.m., actually. Thursdays for us. And we'll see you all next week. So thanks for listening. In.